This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker. We're having a very interesting guest today who is going to talk to us about her personal experience with a family member who is recovering from schizophrenia, as a matter of fact. You may recall that we had an interview with Kevin Hall, who wrote the book Black Sails and White Rabbits, a very interesting interview back on 015, Corbin Journal 015. And this meeting today is going to be in a similar venue, similar topic, Rebecca Shaper is going to tell us about her experience of dealing with her brother who is recovering from schizophrenia and her learning experience in that process. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dr. Parker, thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity. So I'm going to introduce you guys to Rebecca and then we'll go ahead and hear her story. It's compelling. Rebecca Shaper is an author, filmmaker, philanthropist, and mental health advocate. With Kyle Tequila, she co-directed and executive produced the award-winning documentary, A Sister's Call. And it's about her mission to bring her brother, Carl Richmond Jr., back from the depths of homelessness and schizophrenia. The name of the book is The Light in His Soul, Lessons from My Brother's Schizophrenia. That is her first book. So we're going to talk more about that, and I think we should just jump right into it without hesitation at all. And I want to ask a key question that will get us started on this conversation, because a person can say, well, what did you do? What's going on? So the question is, what compelled you to make a documentary about your brother with schizophrenia and then write a book about it? Actually, Dr. Parker, it was a soul calling and on both of them, the documentary and the book. And let me give you a little background on that. My brother had a semester left of college, and he disappeared and went missing for 20 years. 20 years. 1977. The way I found him was a true miracle. My mother-in-law was donating furniture, and my brother just so happened to be one of the men who assigned to her house to pick up the donations. After he got the furniture, he got back in the truck, looked at the name, and realized who she was. He went back to her house and introduced himself. Marge, do you know who I am? I am Carl Richmond, Rebecca's brother. She brought him in. She said, oh, my God, Carl, do you realize how long Rebecca has been looking for you? Now, during this process, I always knew he was alive. And people told me, Rebecca, get up. I was told that he was dead on the streets of Atlanta. And I just never believed it. So when we met, Colin and I met, I drove up to where he was. And it was in the parking lot of Haven of Rest where he was staying for a while. I will never forget that day. It was so emotional. It was the most amazing reunion we had. So when he came back into our life, I saw my brothers being broken, homeless. But you know what? I could tell something was different about him. And by different, I mean, I could see that he was struggling with an illness, but I also was able to look into his soul 
beyond his illness and see him for who he was. He was a very sensitive individual who tended to be highly aware of hidden feelings and feelings of others. I believe people dealing with mental issues are very creative and have wide opening gating channels to receive a great deal of information. So I just felt compelled to start documenting his life. Then one day, I drove up to Carl's apartment. I asked him if he wanted me to tell a story about being on the road. Now I brought a video camera, and he did not know this. So when I asked him if he would want me to tell him a story, he said, Rebecca, I'd love that. And you know something, Dr. Parker? I'll never forget that day. I remember walking away, and it was almost like he already knew I was going to ask him that. So that is what I did and started feeling. Now, most people would look at my life as traumatic. I grew up, there was suicide, alcoholism, sexual abuse, and mental illness all in my family. And later in life, my daughter had an eating disorder. Now, looking back in our childhood, I felt Carl took on the majority of this chaos and dysfunction in our family. He was the catalyst for the film. Carl gave me the opportunity to give him a voice and a chance he never had. Without us finding each other, the addictions and wounds would not have healed or the cycle would have continued. We broke that cycle together all the addictions. Did he have an addiction problem as well? Was that something else? He was on the road. He drank a lot and he smoked continuously. Mm -hmm. But after I found him, he quit cold turkey. That was it. He wanted to be found. Yes. His purpose was being served. Our purpose was being served. Mm -hmm. So all the challenges were lessons to learn. And with these challenges in turn, He was there to help heal the wounds in our family. Now, I know that's a long answer for the film, (laughs) but even after it was complete and there was so much more I needed to share, that's when the book gave me another platform and also an opportunity to go into more detail about our family's transformation, our healing process, and his life. Well, let me ask you this question as an author myself and bonding with you a little bit on that. Did you feel like you wanted to write a book in the first place? Did you have this calling to communicate before any of this happened? No, let me preface this. I knew nothing about filming. I just knew I had to do this. I didn't care how it looked. I just was had that strong urge that I had to do this, the catalyst. So that's how Kyle walked into my life. I had a lot of synchronicity during this journey and the book. Did you feel in the interview process with him that you grew the more you discussed with him your appreciation and awareness of the problems that he had and mental health and individuals with mental health problems grew in the process of your talking to him personally? Absolutely. And overall, the purpose of the film and the book is to give others hope, love, compassion, and forgiveness. So that's a noble purpose. What did you feel was the biggest surprise for you in reading, in in discussing the situation, writing it down, and really thinking about that relationship? What was the biggest surprise for you? I will be very honest with you. I felt Carl and I had a 
soul agreement with each other. You mentioned the soul a couple of times. Let's, let's dig into the soul a little bit. When you say a soul agreement, let's elaborate that for listeners so that they really understand what you're, what you're referring to there. Okay. I do believe that uh, we are reincarnated when we come back into this life. And I believe that you choose the people in your life. You choose your tribe. And that's why I felt so compelled to tell the story with Carl, because of our soul contract to break the karma and addictions in our family and to help give others hope through love, compassion, and forgiveness. And we lived it. I lived it. So it's through my experience with my brother. So then what do you think is the most important thing you learned in that process in terms of dealing with a mentally ill loved one? What's the take home? Hey, this is what we all have to do. We have to think about this differently. What's the message there? That they are different and to look into their soul and see who they really are. See truly who they are with compassion and no judgment and to be patient. See, what you're talking about in a way and is connecting with the other person. You're using the word soul, but I think what happens is the word soul may be off-putting for some because it has a certain spiritual connotation. And while I agree with you that you may have had a spiritual experience and a transcendent experience in that connection with your brother, I think it's important for listeners to really think about this in a somewhat broader perspective in the sense that you had a certain intuitive awareness of the things that were going on with him. And you're an intuitive person anyway. And then apparently what you discovered, I'm, I'm guessing on this because we haven't talked about this, but that not only are you an intuitive person, but you were quite surprised to find out who, how intuitive he was Absolutely. and how, how deep he was. Absolutely. So he's a, a very deep guy and you're a deep person. So then this would have been rewarding because that's where the concept of the soul concept would come from because you were relating to each other on a more transcendent level that was beyond brother and sister. This was a person that you had a certain special feeling for an intuitive connection with that transcended being merely brother and sister. Yes, absolutely. Well put. All right. So then let's talk about the really challenging and troubling part of it, which was uh, what we've talked with others about is the whole business of schizophrenia. I mean, I think we need to dig into that a little bit because the very first larger question that we can get into is how does schizophrenia affect the whole family? What, and I would say not only your family, but the family of man. I mean, what, what's the reaction? What's the problem with schizophrenia? I can just speak from my experience. For me, the reality is that most cases, mental illness is generational. It gets passed down from your ancestors. And in some cases, the family may not even know because It wasn't properly diagnosed. And I also feel that as to how it affects the whole family is when my brother came back into my life and my family's life after 20 years, for me, he was my brother and I loved him no matter what. But for my family, it took on another avenue. They had a hard time adjusting to him. My husband was afraid of him because he thought he was unpredictable. And unstable. And he was worried and he did not want my daughters to be around him. But I knew in my heart, my brother would never do anything like that. But it's that trust issue. And to be honest, I think Carl was just as fearful 
coming back into our lives as well. So for me, what was normal to my brother and myself may not be normal to my husband or my two daughters. Or to others who've experienced this. It's just that you had a, you did have a unique perspective, but it, it is a constructive perspective because you did learn something from it in that you had some suppositions and preconceptions that you went into it with that actually were changed in the process of dealing with him. And you were enlightened by the process is what you're saying. Absolutely. And as time went on, my daughters began to trust him. And I will have to say that during the times when my daughters were struggling with issues in their life, Carl would just pick up the phone, didn't know what was going on with them. But he had this intuitive sense that he said, Rebecca, what's going on with Kim? Or another time he'd pick up the phone, he'd say, Rebecca, what's going on with Lauren? And I will say this, had a voice that came over him saying that I'm going to have to take your mother. And two weeks later, my mother died by suicide with alcohol and drugs because she was schizophrenic. Oh, my gosh. So, so he, had that, he had that word come to him. Absolutely. And yeah. it's in the film, he talks about it in the film. And I will say this, too. He never told me that. And he carried that guilt for a long time. And he did pass away in 2012. So uh, his purpose was served. And I want to continue on with, with it with the book. Well, that's interesting. Now, let me ask you this question. Let me put my psychiatric hat on because I know a lot of listeners are out there and they know I'm a psychiatrist and this is core brain journal. And you're talking about some things that are a little edgy now and we got to bring this down. Not, there are a lot of people who do, and I'm not disputing anything you're saying because I've talked to a number of people who've had similar experiences. So I'm not taking a position at all negative. I'm really just trying to amplify on this next question. And that is speaking as a traditional guy who has been for years focused on individuals who are more disturbed like that, getting them on the right medication. Was he on medication? Was he off medication? What was going on with all that in his life? All right. So when I did find him, I got him with SSI. He was on medication. But as you well know, it's not cookie cutter. That's so. Yeah. yeah. It takes a while to get him on the proper medication. And he was on various medication. And at some point, he was over-medicated. But once he was pretty stabilized, that's when everything started seemed normal. He pulled, he pulled out. He found himself again. Yeah. Did he get a job or what happened with that? He did have a job with McDonald's, but then probably that lasted about four months and then he couldn't do it anymore. It, it was overwhelming to him, but he tried. And here's the thing about it too, Dr. Parker, is that he was able to focus. Even though he was on this type of medication, he was able to focus beyond situations that I don't think a person with normal schizophrenia would be able to come. Could you give us an example of that? You're, you sound to be quite taken with that, that point. Well, the example, like I say, was with my daughters. That whole, yeah, that business there, yeah. Yes. He, he was connected with her like he was connected with you. Exactly. And he could focus and he had a certain openness to that communication, whatever it was, whether it was nonverbal or whatever. He was, he was connected with the family. Absolutely. And I remember him telling me, he said, Rebecca, I would just sit back and I would observe. He was a man 
of little words, but very wise. Very wise. And I would like to add this little uh, caveat here. When we found out that he had colon cancer, I took him to the doctor. And we were sitting in the doctor's office. And the doctor was explaining to him what was going on. And my brother reached over and shook his hand. And he said, thank you very much for your wisdom. So Colin knew he was dying, and the doctor pretty much told him that he had maybe two, four months. That's pretty profound. If someone tells you you got two or four months to live, and you reach over and shake the doctor's hand and say, thank you very much for your wisdom, that was extremely Yeah, there's a certain strength there, no question about it. He had amazing strength. He really did. And he... What he would tell people, because I did ask him, I said, Carl, what would you tell people with your illness? He said, Rebecca, I would tell them to see a psychiatrist and pray. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the other thing on a side note, reading your material, your daughter had some problems as well. Yes. And I want you to, if you will, talk a little bit about that because you've had an experience. One of the things that's really good about talking with a person like you, you're a citizen of the world. You're not you're not a psychiatrist. You're not a mental health professional. One of the reasons we enjoy having folks on like you, we think the dialogue really needs to be improved between professionals and the public and the public, even in their relationship with other members of the public in terms of what they've accomplished and what they've done. And we do appreciate you coming on board. So this is a little personal talking about your daughter, but it's another mental health avenue. And I think it bears some you were edified. You had some learning experiences with your daughter as well, but it sounds like they was a different kind of problem. Could you tell us how it was different and what you learned there? Okay. Kim went to college and she was really thin. It concerned us. So we brought her back home and we found out that she had an eating disorder. And also too, she was sexually abused by my as I was as well. And so those two situations were very challenging in our life. But I knew in my heart of hearts, she would get better. And she was in and out of treatment as well. But today, I tell you what, she has courage. She has determination. And she's an entrepreneur. And she is thriving. So let's talk more about Kim and what happened. And what's the difference between her experience and your brother's experience with schizophrenia. And one thing, and this is a little personal, you may not want to get into it, but it sounds like you had an edifying experience because you had some troubles yourself that were quiescent from your childhood that came up in this whole situation with your brother and then with your daughter. And that there was a learning experience and a beneficial, quote-unquote, therapeutic effect in your working through these issues with your family members. Yes. Are you speaking of the sexual abuse? Obviously. Yeah, I didn't want to mention it in dialogue, but you but know. That's okay. Yeah, Listen, that's... it's in the book. It's in the film. Okay. My daughter and I come together and we talk about it in the film and we talk about it in the book because I wanted to bring awareness to mothers and daughters and it shows forgiveness. But naturally, we had to go through the process with each other and have this mutual understanding and communication and forgiveness with each other as well. But with Kim's determination and courage, it was unbounded. She just kept cooking. She was going to make it happen. Yes. And I knew she could do it. She had a lot of support 
from our family. She was in and out of treatment a lot, but she persevered. So what was the difference in working with your daughter and with your brother? Because one's schizophrenic, the other person has had trauma. And then what would you say to a lay person? Hey, there are a couple of differences that I learned here. This is what I learned with this person. This is what I learned with this person. Well, I would say one size does not fit all. Every person is different and each person needs different care. They also have to be willing and accepting of the help and to get better as well. And yes, Kim had the determination and courage, but that alone isn't always enough. We were able to provide her inpatient and outpatient care and after she completed the treatment. Even with that, it was trial and error until we found the right one for her. She was living at our house, so we were able to keep close tabs on her. So I think that's a real factor to help give someone like our daughter support. We were able to provide private care for her. And I think that helped a lot with her healing process. You were determined to do it. Yeah. 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 So what do you think that the, uh, having been a, a citizen involved with these things, what would you say that you'd want the medical community to know? We have professionals listening in and, and of course the issue is, we all have our different opinions about what needs to be done in these different things. But just from a participant's point of view, what would you say was one of the big learning things for you that the medical community would, would benefit from? Okay, this is a tough one. But in my experience, I feel that you are treated differently when it comes to something mental versus something physical. It's about trying to quickly fix the symptoms and not really listen and get to the core of what is really going on. I've come across some wonderful people in the medical industry, and if it wasn't for them, Paul wouldn't have gotten on the right treatment or my daughter. But I will say you can't solely rely on one person or doctor. You have to be your own advocate as well. I love that thought. We're, that's what we're all about here. We want to train the public to take care of themselves effectively with their medical team as opposed to being passive participants. That's a big reason that we're talking to you right now. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing, too, I'd like to say the social workers were amazing with call. And if it hadn't been for them, Lord, I don't know what I would have done. They were incredible. But what was the thought that came to your mind right there that you were amazed about? You were thinking about something that happened. Yeah, it allowed me to have some freedom to say, okay, I know I can trust this process and call social worker and I communicated together. To me, that is a huge key is the advocate communicate with the social worker or whoever is in the medical field. They need to bridge that gap together and talk about the best way to treat the individual. So to translate what you're saying, that social worker really helped you articulate what you needed to articulate to the medical profession because the doctor may or may not have had the time to get the nuances of what was going on. And that social worker helped you articulate it and bring it to a full level of conceptualization. Is that true? Yeah, we were communicating back and forth together because we lived in different states. Colin and I lived in different states and I drove up there a lot and met with her. So. Um, yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Let's take a little moment to say 
the, what changes would you like to, now we're going into the larger question here, Rebecca, and this will be a last question and we'll wind up. But the issue is, what changes would you like to see in public policy? This is a very broad question. What have you learned being a participant, a citizen participant, and what do you think really we should begin to think about as a, as a larger society in terms of how we deal with issues like this? I think there should be more proper education for first responders in the school systems. And after a mentally ill comes out of the hospital or jail, because I think they are in and out so quickly, they are then kind of left to go back to, quote, normalcy with no support. It is, in a sense, setting someone up for failure. And um, unfortunately, our country is in the midst of a rental housing crisis. And many people with serious mental illness struggle to find an affordable place to live. Therefore, as a result, many homeless people face inappropriate options. And I believe the insurance companies and medical benefits treat the medical disorder better than they do the mental disorder. Oh, there's no question about that. We have high school girls telling us what to do. I'm telling you, that's the way it is. No question about it. Of course, I'm not irritated about it. It's totally acceptable. And I would like to say that people just need to be very aware if something is off with their loved one or someone that they know, if they start withdrawing, they start showing different system. I mean, uh, different. They start withdrawing from their friends, if they isolate they start doing different behavior. To me, those are symptoms for people to be very aware and bring it to the forefront instead of ignoring it. I think that helps. Well, just to chime in with you a little bit, I think what's going on and uh, you know, some of the tension that I feel about managed care is because it is really cookie cutter. We're really, we're really managed by labels. And if a person has a label, they're put in a certain box. Yeah. And what happens is the managed care companies live on those labels. They actually encourage those labels and check to make sure we're using the labels and to make sure that we're thinking that way. They are the thought police. And so then what happens is if we don't do what they think we should do with that label, then we're out of line. We're going to have somebody call us and have a problem with what we're doing. And, uh, and they double think, triple think everything that we're doing because they think somehow the whole priority for them is, is the money. They want to make sure they get the most money they can possibly make out of that sick individual. And if, we, if it was happening to us as, as professionals, if any of us medical people did that, we'd be run out on a rail in the, of the town, and we would be, somebody would sue us, because it would be so completely evident that we're taking advantage of the situation for purely economic purposes. Absolutely. But what we have here is we got an economic system where they're paying and resenting paying. And so then what they're going to do is they know that there's a whole group of weak individuals out there and the mentally ill people are weak and can't stand up for themselves. They've had problems already. And all they have to do is work that system. Just keep paying those dividends or pay, pardon me, pay those uh, premiums and we'll just keep telling you what to do. And uh, there's, there's some motion in the process of people being more open about it. But if you just take biomedical testing, which is the current state of the art in terms of really understanding what's going on with people, the support for biomedical testing is 
ridiculous. And if they actually got behind biomedical testing, they would diminish so many of these problems. And uh, it would be, but the issue is there's a cost to it. So, and people don't want to support that. So it's, yeah, it's really sad. That would be incredible if you could bridge that gap. Yeah. It's going to be a long time before that happens. Well, so in closing, what would you like to tell our audience in terms of what you've learned and where to go? Let's talk about your book one more time. And so Rebecca Shaper is telling us, tell us the name of your book one more time. The Light in His Soul, Lessons from My Brother's Schizophrenia. Fantastic. Now you you have a website. The website is going to be on our show notes. Can you tell us what your website is? It is author at RebeccaShaper.com. Good. Now that's your email. And then and Rebecca Shaper is your website. Right. They can reach me there or that yes. Or they can email you at author.rebeccashaper dot and it's S C H A P E R, folks, just so you know. Yes. So great, Rebecca. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been a very interesting story and a really life experience. It's not really a story. It's funny when you say the word story, it has an element of being not real, but this is definitely reality and we appreciate your sharing your reality with us. Well, thank you very much. And yes, it is reality and I lived it. And I just want to thank my team very much for making this happen. But most of all, I want to thank my family for their support. And thank you again. Dr. Parker. Oh, you're quite welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for coming on. You have a good day. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.